over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about the parables of Jesus. And today in particular, we're going to talk about the parable of the prodigal God, and I'm going to explain that title in just a minute. But earlier this week, I bought a book at Lifeway. I uh, was at Lifeway. I was downtown doing some things and went by Lifeway and was just browsing through. Sometimes I do that to get ideas for sermon series or titles, or God will use something to kind of stick out to me. I already knew what I was preaching over the next several weeks, and so I was just kind of browsing. And I came along a book that I didn't intend to buy anything when I was there, but it was a book that the entire book was filled with the sayings or the words of Jesus. The only thing in the book were the words of Jesus. Now, it was divided into categories, but what interested me as I was thinking about the parables and I was thinking about what I was preaching over the next few weeks is I went to the section on parables, and it filled pages. In fact, when I began to investigate, I noticed that a lot of what Jesus said in the Gospels were told in the form of parables. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to look at some of the most familiar parables that Jesus used. Now, the reason that we're going to do that is because even though they are stories that sometimes we are very familiar with, sometimes we miss the message that was intended. And today, in particular, we're going to talk about a parable that I believe we miss the meaning of often. Now, it's one of the most popular parables in all of Scripture. It's in Luke 15. It's among three parables that are there that tell the same kind of story. But the parable of the prodigal God, most of the time you hear it as the parable of the prodigal son, right? The reason that I changed that title is because I don't think that's a good description of what is there. When we talk about the parable of the prodigal son, most people think that we're talking about the younger brother. The brother that asked for the inheritance, we'll read the story in a minute, but most of you know it, that asked for the inheritance and goes off to the far country, lives a reckless lifestyle, loses everything, decides to come back to the father, the father accepts him. That's the parable of the prodigal son. And so we focus on the prodigal son. My problem with that, as I've continued to study the parable, is there are three main characters in the parable of the prodigal God. And of those three main characters, the younger brother may be the least important. Now think about that. We have named a parable in popular culture, popular church life, out of what is perhaps the least important of three main characters. In fact, I think if Jesus were here today and able to talk to us about this parable, he would say that the parable of the prodigal God, the younger son in that parable, that what is really happening is he is just setting the table for the main scene. Now before we begin reading the story, we need to understand that this has been called one of the greatest stories ever told. In fact, Charles Dickens said that it is the greatest story ever written. Ralph Waldo Emerson said the exact same thing, that this is the greatest story ever ever written. And when you think about it, it is true that it is rich and inexhaustible in the depth of what it teaches, yet it is simple enough that a child can understand it. Luke chapter 15. We're going to start in verses 1 and 2, and we'll come back there in a minute, but then I'm going to read the parable after that, starting in verse 11. 
It says, now the tax collectors and sinners. If you've got a new international version of the Bible, you'll see that sinners is in quotation marks. We're all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Verse 3 begins, then Jesus told them this parable. So you have one parable. You have two parables. And then you have verse 11. Most people feel like the first two parables set up the third, that it's all one part of a major discourse. But in verse 11 he says, Jesus continued, there was a man who had how many sons? Two. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered. One of those great words that describes exactly what he did, his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, how much did he spend? Everything. There was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Verse 17, I love this phrase. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion for him, ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, The older son was in the field. When they came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what was going on. Your brother has come home, he replied. And your father has killed the calf because he is back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. So he answered his father's and said, look. All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad. Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. A few things I want us to see out of this passage of Scripture this morning is that Jesus really wants us to think again about some things we think we know. What I love about this 
this passage is the setting in which we find it. Jesus is talking to two distinct groups of people. It tells us at the very beginning of of chapter 15 that Jesus is talking to the tax collectors and the sinners, right? The people that were far away from God, that were living lives like the younger brother would live when he'd go into the far country and he'd gather around and Jesus is teaching them and that the Pharisees are there and they go, can you believe it? Jesus is talking to those people. He's he's fellowshipping with those people. He's eating with those people. How in the world could he ever do that? And so Jesus has on one hand the sinners and the tax collectors, and on the other hand he has these Pharisees, the preachers, the religious people, the law keepers. And he looks at the two of them, and he starts to tell the story. Now, what I think is interesting is that he uses the first two parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin to set up the third, which is of the lost sons. And I use that word plural. Because I believe what Jesus is doing throughout this whole passage, what he is doing in this parable is he is going right to the heart of the reason that the Pharisees had rejected him. I mean, Jesus is already on his way to Jerusalem. He is already on his way to the cross. He has set his mind on his task. He has set his mind on what is coming. And he knows that the cross is in his future. And yet he is here today saying to the Pharisees, Listen, you are missing out on an opportunity. You are losing the ability to see me, to hear me, to talk to me. You are getting ready to do something that you would not imagine doing. If you knew what you were doing, you must listen to why you are rejecting me. And yet they listen and they don't hear. And this morning, out of this passage of Scripture, I want us just to see what he's telling those tax collectors, those sinners, and those Pharisees. The reason that I call it the parable of the prodigal God is because most of us have come to assume that the word prodigal means something bad, right? Now, the prodigal son means it's it's rebellious. It's the parable of the rebellious son or the lost son. But the truth is that the word prodigal just means lavish or extravagant. And so I think the main reason for this parable is to teach us about the lavish, extravagant grace of God. But to get there, Jesus wants us to reevaluate a few things. First of all, Jesus wants us to reevaluate our concept of sin. Jesus wants us to reevaluate our concept of sin. Now, the truth is, if I were to ask you today, can you pick out sin in this chapter, most of you could pick it out pretty quickly. Absolutely. There's that younger brother. He asked the father for the inheritance. He goes off to the place and he lives wild. He lives recklessly. He moves downtown. He, he lives among people he shouldn't be living. He does things he shouldn't be doing. He squanders all the wealth. He lives in a ridiculous way. That is sin. And the truth is you're right. I mean, Jesus doesn't gloss over the fact that what this guy did was wrong. What I love about Jesus is that he was able to tell the sinners and the tax collectors and the adulterous women and the prostitutes and anybody else that would come around him, he was able to tell them that what they were doing was wrong, yet they still were attracted to him. 
And so he doesn't gloss over the fact that there is real sin here. I mean, in fact, this, this uh, parable, if you will, is really a story in three acts. And in Acts 1, he shows this younger brother's sin. It's what one pastor has called the sin or the way of self-discovery. Now, one of the ways people sin is they just say, listen, I've got to find my own way. I've got to do my own thing. I've got to go out in those wide open spaces and see what life has for me. I've been sheltered too long. You've held me under your thumb too much. I've got to find out what it is all about. I've got to sow my wild oats. I've got to live it up a little bit. I've got to see what the world has to offer. And so you have one, a brother who sins in the way of self-discovery. And don't get me wrong, it is a major sin. In the parable, he goes to his dad and he says to his dad, Dad, I want your stuff. Now what's interesting is here, there's a word used in this passage that is not used anywhere else in the New Testament. And it's not the word for inheritance. Most of the time when sons came, they would say, I want the inheritance. Well, the inheritance meant that you got the land with the responsibility. If your dad gave you over the land, that means that you got the land, but you also had to take care of the land. This brother comes and he doesn't say, I want the inheritance. He says, literally, I want the stuff. The modern paraphrase of that out of a movie was, show me the money, right? He says to his dad, Dad, I want the stuff. Give me my stuff. Now, he was the younger brother. He would only have gotten a third. But the truth is, in that day and time, most of the people in that, that, that time didn't have just money laying on hand. They didn't have bank accounts. Their money, their inheritance was tied to the land. There is a good possibility that the father had to sell some stuff to give him the stuff. And so he gives it to his son, and the son takes it, and he squanders it. Many commentators point out that basically what this younger son is saying to the dad is, Dad, all I care about in our relationship is your stuff. I want that, not you. This parable hits home a little more in the last two to three years than it did before. Because you see, I'm parenting an older son and a younger son. Now, Luke has not yet come and asked for his inheritance. I'm thankful for that. Because right now I'd say, you ain't got any. Sorry. Luke was a little sick this week, and we ended up spending some time with some doctors. And there was a moment when we had to have a test run just to make sure everything was all right with him, and he's fine and here today and all that. But I had him, and I was holding him, and he had felt bad all day. And they had given him some medicine, and it was at that moment that he just kind of perked up. You know, some of you have been around kids when they're sick, and they're sick, they're sick, they're sick, and then all of a sudden just they perk up. Well, I was carrying him in my arms, and he just perked up, and he just looked at me with the biggest eyes you can imagine, and he just grabbed my face literally and brought my mouth to his and gave me a big, wet kiss, all right? Some of you out there that don't have kids might ooh, gross. It ain't gross, all right? And then he just looked at me and gave me a big hug and said, Love you, Daddy. He's just learning how to say that, so he says it a lot. That night, I was looking back over some of these notes, and I asked the question, how much would it break my heart if 15, 16 years from now, he comes to me and says, Dad, I don't want any kind of relationship anymore. I'm gone. My younger brother sinned in a serious way. 
Let me just speak real quick. Some of you in this room, even though you're here today, may be living the life of the younger brother. Some of you may have children that are living the life of the younger brother, and they've turned their back on God. They've turned their back on the church. They've turned their back on the teachings of the Word of God. And you think to yourself, how in the world could I ever get back? The truth is that you can't go any farther down that road than this guy went. But it's important, especially for us in this room, to realize that there are two ways that sin is shown here. It's not only the way of self-discovery, but it's what that same pastor calls the way of moral conformity. There are two people that sin here. The younger brother sins, but then when the younger brother comes back, the father throws a big party, the older brother's out there, and the older brother sins as well. Now, what is his sin? What's his problem? Here's his problem. The older son is trusting completely in the moral record that he has. His sin is his pride in what he's done. The older brother comes, the father comes and says, listen, your brother's home. It's time to come back. He says, I am not going into that house because I have been here every day. I have done everything you've asked me to do. I've followed the law. I've followed the rules. I've followed everything you've asked. And I am not going in there with that brother who has turned his back on you. He doesn't deserve what you have. This older brother really thought that by doing all this stuff, he was earning the father's favor in order to get the Father's stuff. This is what I believe. That the younger brother and the older brother, neither one of them loved the Father for the Father. They loved the Father for what they could get. Now the younger was more blatant. Dad, give me the stuff. The older brother just thought, I'll just wait around here. I'll do all the good stuff. I'll do all that. And when I get to the end of the day, he's going to realize that I've been the one that's been working the most. I've been the one that's been doing the chores. I've been the one that's been doing everything. And so I deserve stuff. Neither one loved the father for who he was. That's what I think is interesting. In this story, we have one good brother, one bad brother, and yet they're both alienated from the Father. second thing Jesus wants us to reevaluate is not only our understanding of sin, but we must reevaluate our concept of rebellion. Now again, with the younger brother, that's not real difficult. Understanding the younger brother was lost is not real difficult. He left. He went to this place. He lived it up. He squandered everything. He did things that were unimaginable, things you shouldn't do. And then he comes back to the Father. It's not hard to evaluate the rebellion of the younger brother. But let me suggest to you that the rebellion of the older brother was just as severe. And the reason we know that he has rebelled is because of his reaction at the end of the chapter. And what I want to tell you today is that there are a lot of people who sit in the pew on Sunday morning in churches across this land. And I would dare say that there are people that are sitting in the pew right here this morning that if we are not careful and if we are perfectly honest with ourselves, we will see in ourselves the older brother lives here. Because it's easy to fall into that trap. Jesus wants us to understand and wants the Pharisees to understand that they are just as rebellious as the sinners. Now, he could not come out and tell them that. I mean, think about it. Think about if he would have walked up to one of the Pharisees and said, listen, I'm eating with the sinners and tax collectors. You're just as bad as they are. No, we're not, Jesus. 
You haven't seen what we've been doing. I mean, we are at the temple whenever the doors are open. And we know the Ten Commandments and we follow them. And we have worked hard to build this kingdom. We have worked hard to help God's people. We are doing all the things that we're supposed to do. We are not just as bad as that younger brother, as those sinners. But Jesus' point here is they are. So how do you recognize older brother syndrome? Older brother rebellion. Because it's much harder to see it than it is the younger brother. The younger brother we all see, boy, we need to pray for so-and-so. They are, they've, just, they've just lost it. They've left home. They've gotten into stuff they shouldn't be getting into. It's just terrible. We need to be praying for them. How many times have you been in a prayer meeting when somebody says, we need to pray for so-and-so because they're just doing too much stuff at church and they're getting to be like an older brother? We don't see it as much. So what does it look like? First of all, an older brother rebellion has an angry spirit of grumbling. Look what it says in verse 28. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. The Greek word there for angry is the word orge, which means literally to fly into a rage. So he gets mad. And then he won't go in, and then he starts to complain and criticize and whine. Look, all these years I've been slaving for you, never disobeyed you, never gave me even a young goat. Where's my goat? Doesn't that seem ridiculous right there? He gets mad and he starts grumbling. One of the ways you can tell from older brother syndrome is starting to creep in is when you begin to develop an attitude of criticism and grumbling. I was talking with another pastor, and we were talking about one of those phrases that we love in the pastorate. They're just phrases that people say to pastors they don't say to other people sometimes. And you may say this in other places, but in the church, it's always interesting as a pastor when someone comes up to you and says, Now, Pastor... I don't mean to be critical, but, Pastor, I'm not one to complain, but, Pastor, I'm not one that that wants to cause up any trouble, but, now I can tell you, what follows that but is never something positive, all right? Pastor, I don't want to be one to criticize, but I want you to know you are the greatest thing that has ever walked the earth. This is an unbelievable church. I am so excited about what's happening. That doesn't follow, all right? I was reading about a pastor who was talking about a service that they had where literally, he, and he said this doesn't happen very often, but literally the, the altar was filled. People came to know Christ. They had lost people there that they had not been there that came to know Christ. They had, they had people that were giving their lives back to the Lord. And, and after it was over, those people went out to counseling with the staff, and he went out back to meet with the people as they were leaving. And he said as they were leaving, he just started in his mind making a mental catalog of what people said. And he says, as he was out there, he's got the stuff, and he wrote it down when he left. He said, somebody walked out to him and said, Pastor, that was an unbelievable service. Man, wasn't it great to see all those people come down front? But you know what? We sang too many praise songs this morning. We really need to have a couple more hymns next week. Two people later, a person walked up and said, Pastor, wasn't it great to see all those people coming down front this morning? But I don't know if you noticed this or not, but one of those guys that came down had an earring. Can you talk to him about that? Now, Pastor, I'm going to tell you. He said, literally, he's a one Pastor, I'm going to tell you that. That service is more unbelievable. Isn't it always great to see people come to the Lord like that? But I don't know if you noticed, but there were some people in church today that had shorts on. Now, Pastor, 
I, I love I love the service today. It was great. But I, I really think we need to reevaluate whether or not we're going to use drums. They were just a little loud this morning. The one this church taught, uh, not us. Now, pastor, I loved it, but... Another pastor tells a story of being in a business meeting one time. And he talked about the fact that they'd been making some changes because he realized they were not attracting people to come to the church that were that were in need of Jesus, that were looking for something, that they were just the same people together, just kind of mixing around. And they began to implement some things to draw people in. And people started coming. People started attending. People started being saved. People started having their lives changed. And he said they had this business meeting one night, and apparently a group of people were not excited about what was happening. And so one by one, people started kind of popping up and saying, Pastor, I would just like to say that I wish we wouldn't do this anymore. And another person said, well, I wish we wouldn't do this anymore. And to each one, the pastor would say, well, you know what? The reason we made that change was because we felt like it would help people come into the church. And in fact, we've got two or three people that have joined the church that mentioned this, help them to get to a place where they could hear the word from God. And finally, a man stood up and said, Pastor, the real problem is we're just not excited about all these lost people being in our church. The pastor said at that moment, he thought, well, the tipping point's here. We finally got to it. Now people are going to see it for what it really is, and we'll be done with it. He said, instead, applause broke out. When you begin to think that the church is all about us, you're developing a spirit of an older brother. Let me tell you something. The church is the only organization that exists on this planet that I know of for the whole benefit of its non-members. We are not here for ourselves. We are here for people that need to come that are not in these doors yet. We are ministering. We are preaching. We are singing. We are doing all these things for people that have yet to come into this place. Here's the second thing that comes with the older brother rebellion. That is an inflated sense of goodness. An inflated sense of goodness. Look what it says in verse 29. He answered his father. This is what I want you to do, all right? I want you to count in your head, not out loud, but in your head, how many times I, me, or my is used, okay? You got it? But he answered his father's. All these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who has squandered your property comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. You notice how self-centered he becomes? It all becomes about him. Which leads to the third thing that comes, and that's just a faulty understanding of grace. For some reason in the church, we seem to have projected to people around us that the whole point of grace is to get saved and then work like you can't believe it to make sure you stay that way. And the truth is that what happens is that we have to begin to understand that grace means that none of us deserve the love of the Father. We have to understand that grace means that none of us deserve the love of the Father. Notice what he thinks here. He thinks he's worked hard enough to get a bunch of stuff. He thinks it's about what he deserves. And part of the spirit of an older brother is they think they deserve more than other people. 
because they've given more or worked longer or been there more or done more stuff or been through more stuff. They've served on more committees. They've been a deacon longer. They've done all this stuff. So as a result, I deserve more. We deserve more. Pastor, we deserve this. Pastor, I deserve that. Let me tell you something. When you begin to look at the church and think about what you deserve from the church, you are missing the point completely. I've been saved since I was nine years old. I've called into ministry this summer before my uh, freshman year in high school. I've been pastoring churches now. It'll be eight years this coming August. But the minute that I think, because of what I've done since my salvation, or what I do as a pastor, or how I've led churches, or my devotion supposedly to the Lord, the minute I begin to think I deserve anything from Him is the moment I misunderstand grace. You and I deserve nothing. You and I deserve nothing. Matthew chapter 20 is another parable we're not going to cover in this series. But it's a parable of some workers. And the workers are out in the field. And there are some workers that get there early in the morning and they work a full day. And there are some workers that get there in the late hour and they just work a little bit. And they get done and the master comes up and says, all right, time to pay up. And he pays them all the same. Now, I want to guarantee you, if you were the worker that got there at 8 o'clock in the morning, you would be mad as everything. Amen?
Amen?